You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your father's, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that, he, that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So, when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahaleth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God, I'm sorry, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place this is none other than the house of god and this is the gate of heaven so early in the morning jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it he called the name of the place bethel but the name of the city was Luz at the first then jacob made a vow saying if god be if god will be with me and will keep me in in this way that i go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Oh God, we come before you, and we trust that your word has power, that every word of it is true and reliable and good for us. And so God, as we come to your word, we pray that you would give grace give grace to me as I communicate, uh, that I would communicate truth. And God, we pray for those that are listening, that they would hear truth and that they would respond to truth in faith. Help us in this relatively obscure story buried in the first book of the Bible, right in the middle. God, bring it to life. Help us to understand uh, 
what you are doing in your word and how we can be a part of it through faith in Jesus Christ. We ask for your grace to be upon us in Jesus' name, amen. So we have been journeying through the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, and uh, getting our, our, our bearings around who God is, where things went wrong, who we are, and how he is putting together a plan and a people through which to bring about his redemptive plan. Um, and so I think I've got it up on a slide here. Um, it's important to know that the book of Genesis is written by Moses, and he is writing it into Exodus Israel. So Israel, by the time they received this book, they've already heard the stories, they've had oral legends passed down, but Moses is the one whom God has chosen under uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to collect these things into inspired scripture. So the original audience is Israel, who's already a formed nation that has been under the boot, under enslavement to the Egyptians. And for 400 years, they have been mistreated and abused, and, and it has seemed like God is far away. Like maybe our God isn't even real. And then out of nowhere, God uses a man named Moses to go and be an instrument through which he would deliver his people out. God had not forgotten his promises. God was working a plan. God did indeed love them and have a special plan for them. And so miraculously, you can read it in the book of, Je of Exodus, miraculously extricated them, delivered them, defeating the Egyptian gods and miraculously bringing the people out into the desert. And now they're gathered around a mountain and they're just sort of waiting. They're just sort of waiting. And during this time, uh, Moses begins to teach them again who their God is, what the world is like, what God is like, how God made humanity in his image, how humanity rebelled against God in the garden and all of humanity then inherited this corruption and this rebellion against God and the world just got worse and worse and worse and worse. But God, even though he brought acts of judgment and cleansing, still kept his promise that one day there would be one who would be the seed of a woman that would crush the head of the serpent, that would reverse the curse, that would redeem what's broken, that would, uh, would overcome the effects of the fall. And that Genesis is tracing that line, tracing that line down through, uh, down to their day in the book of Exodus. So Genesis 1 and 2 tell us about God and his good creation. We've looked at that. We spent a lot of time there looking at who God is, how he made the world, and what we, who, how he made us. In Genesis 3 through 5, we saw that God's image bearers, who were supposed to know him and worship him and be his representatives in the world, corrupted God's good world. It did not take long for one bite of one piece of fruit to then become one brother killing another, and then not very many chapters later, every inclination of the heart of man is evil continually. And so God, with great grief, cleanses the whole earth with a global flood and yet preserves his promise through a, a righteous man Noah preserves him and his family and establishes a covenant with them and then humanity again rebels against God at the tower of Babel defying God's word seeking to rival God building a tower up to God and God both in judgment and to some extent in grace scatters them confuses their languages and the nations then begin to become a thing and then in the midst of all of that stuff, the book then shifts in chapter 12 to going from big world cosmic events down to like Google Street View, from Google Earth to Google Street View, and looking at this one man, this 75-year-old man whom God calls out of paganism to walk with him, to follow him in chapter 12, gives him a promise of offspring, of land, 
and of a great purpose of blessing the whole nations. The promise given in Genesis chapter 3 of a snake crusher, one who would reverse the curse, is going to come through the family of Abraham. And so we watch Abraham walk out with this new God that he's just met. And it goes well sometimes, and it doesn't go well. And you find out that Abraham is not faithful. But God is faithful, and he preserves and keeps Abraham. And in the end, Abraham does prove to be a man of faith. Then in chapter 24, the promise moves on. Not to his firstborn Ishmael, but to Isaac, which is surprising. God brings a miraculous child into the world, and Isaac is the one through whom the promise is to bless the whole world um, comes. And then in chapter 27, we see that, it, that there's two boys that are born to Isaac and Rebekah. And they are rivaling each other. And they are in competition with each other. And the question is, which one will carry on the promise? There's, there's a fork in the road. And which one of these sons? Now, according to custom, it should be the older, Esau. But Esau is not who God chooses. God, by his own good pleasure, through nothing good or bad, and Esau, Esau or Jacob sets his affections on Jacob to be the one who passes on the blessing. And yet they rival and they strive and they um, even swindle their own father. Jacob even swindles his own father who wants to give the blessing to Esau against the will of God and the whole family is falling into turmoil. We see that in, Je in Genesis chapter 27. So that brings us now to 28. As we see now, from here on out through the rest of the book, it's going to be Jacob and his sons. Jacob, Isaac is such a blip on the map. <laughs> He's just only around for a few chapters. But Jacob and his sons carry us through the rest of this book. So the rest of our journey will be looking at those guys. So here we are in Genesis chapter 28. And I want you to notice five characters, five characters in this story. We're going to talk a little bit about each one. I think this is the best way to break up this chapter. One is Isaac. We're going to look at Isaac in verses 1 through 5. I want you to notice some things about him. Then we'll move to Esau. Some things we learn about Esau. And then Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, comes and appears to Jacob, and we learn some things about God and what he's like. And then Jacob, the response that Jacob has to his God, and then ultimately we're going to jump all the way to the New Testament where Jesus actually picks up this story exactly and tells something about himself in the story. So five characters. We're going to spend just a few minutes on each of these and what we should know and what we can learn from this part of the story. So first, let's look at Isaac. And I think we'll notice that Isaac now is beginning to walk in repentance. Isaac is walking in repentance. Remember back in chapter 27, he is living by his senses. And he is determined, Esau is his favorite, but God had already spoken to Rebekah that the younger would serve the older. But Isaac is determined because he loves the food that his older son provides, he is committed to kind of forcing God's hand to bring about the plan through Esau. He's defying God. Esau's defying God. And Rebekah and Jacob hatch a plan to trick their father into doing the right thing, but they lie about it. And there's just this family that totally falls apart. So Isaac is resisting God, but then in chapter 27, verse 33, when all of a sudden this plan works out and all of a sudden Isaac realizes that he accidentally blessed the person God wanted blessed, he realizes that he couldn't thwart God. And in chapter 27, 33, when it comes to his attention, here's what it says. Isaac trembled very violently. I think that's under conviction. He trembled very violently. It doesn't seem like he's angry at anybody. It seems like it's like, man, I have been resisting God and God still accomplished his plan, even though I was trying to go against it. 
I could not thwart God's plan to bend it towards my will. So Isaac trembles very violently and says, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. And you begin to see that Isaac then goes, God's will prevails. I have been fighting it, but now I submit to it. And I think we see in chapter 28, verses one through five, Isaac continuing out of this conviction, out of this realization that he can't fight God, going ahead and submitting to the will of God. Because look at what he does in verse one. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife, a wife from the Canaanite women, which was something that Rebecca suggested, right? She said, suggested at the end of 27 that we don't want to mix the cursed line of Canaan with the blessed line. We need to go get a wife from somewhere else so that there's faithfulness that continues into the future. And so now what was before, Rebecca didn't feel like she, she, she could go to Isaac and go, hey, you're blessing the wrong son. Well, now it seems like there's at least enough of a change of heart here to where there's now communication in the marriage, right? And he's agreeing, he's a listening. This is wise, you're right. His, his eyes, so to speak, his spiritual eyes have been opened. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your father's mother, or your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Which kind of echoes back to chapter 24, when Abraham sent his servant to go get a wife. Not among the Canaanite people, but among from the, from the family. And so they're just repeating this same thing, the same faithful response to go get someone who is part of our faith family. And then look at what he says in verse three. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. You see, he's giving now the Abrahamic promise before he was really determined to give it to Esau. But now God has worked that through. He's sort of accidentally against his will, blessed Jacob. And now he's doubling back down going, no, I need to do the right thing. I need to make sure that there isn't any question about this later that no, this is God's will. I was resisting it at first, but now God's will has prevailed and I am conforming myself to it. And just to be clear, so that there's no question, he blesses him again, clearly with the blessing of Abraham. I think he's walking in repentance. He was challenged in his sin. He realized that, that he was going against God's will, and then he conformed to it and began to walk in faithfulness. And we see the Abrahamic promise. This is uh, the, the land, offspring, and blessing. So it's the Abrahamic promise that now is being bestowed with intentionality, with honesty, with integrity. Now the promise is being blessed upon Jacob. So then that brings us to, oh, just by the way, just a, a fun note here. The word for in verse three, that you may become a company of peoples is the first time that the Old Testament word for church pops up. So it's not just a, a family, but it's going to be a congregation, a gathering that God is going to assemble a people, not just individuals, not just a family, but a company of peoples, of families that will be a church, kahal in Hebrew. And so now we begin to get this sense that it's not just going to be family and ethnicity. It's going to be a congregation that God assembles. It's the early stages of, of a church, a people. And so that's Isaac walking in repentance. Let's look at Esau for just a moment. And he provides such an interesting contrast to Isaac. Isaac 
when all of a sudden it becomes aware that he has been resisting God, conforms himself to God. He walks in repentance. He does the right thing. He becomes a better father, right? He now, this is the first time we actually have him recorded actually speaking really to Jacob at all. And now he's beginning to be a, a father who's looking, looking out for Jacob, giving him instruction. He's listening now to his wife. He's obeying God's word by giving the blessing appropriately to the right son. So we see a walking in repentance in Isaac. But in Esau, when he becomes aware of sin, he just continues to walk in the flesh. He continues to seek worldly solutions to his problems. He doesn't turn to God. He doesn't repent. He continues to try to earn favor in his own way without submitting or repenting. Look at this, verse 5. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Number six, now Isaac saw, I'm sorry, now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you shall not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So you just have the whole retelling of it. Like Esau knows. He knows that this is what's happening. And it seems like it's just now dawning on him. Ah, maybe I shouldn't have married the Canaanite women. Uh, So verse 8, here's his solution. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalaeth, Sorry, Mahaleth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the city sister of Nebaioth. So remember, the last time we'd heard of Esau, he's so mad about this whole swindling of the blessing that he's like, as soon as my dad is out of the way, I'm murdering my brother. He doesn't care about the plan of God. He just wants his father's stuff. And he feels slighted in it. And at no point does he feel any conviction that he doesn't have a heart for God, that he is sinning, that maybe he ought to... Uh, be submissive to the will of God and look out for his brother. No, he's only looking out for himself. And, uh, and so he plans to murder Jacob, which is part of why Jacob has to run away. He has to run away because he doesn't want, they don't want his brother to kill him. But then also he's going to go look for a wife. We're going to get to that in a moment. So that's, that's where we're at with Esau. Now Esau observes this interaction between Isaac and Jacob and begins to go, oh, that's how it's supposed to go. And then here's, here's what happens. It's just now dawning on him that maybe there's an issue with marrying multiple wives and marrying wives who are going to go against the faith and the promise that God had set aside for them. So his conclusion then is not to then repent. It's not to go to his father and seek counsel. It's not to pray to the Lord. It's not to, um, to change anything. His idea is that I will just go ahead and create my own solution. And here's how he concludes. Here's how the flesh concludes that they are made right. So Jacob, he concludes that maybe just marrying a family member, that's the, that's the goal. So let me find the closest cousin and marry them. There's nothing in Esau that does any sort of sense of like, no, God had, had put kind of a curse on Ishmael. That they're really not supposed to mix the line with the Ishmaelites, but he only concludes from a physical, fleshly perspective that, oh, we're just supposed to marry people we're related to. And so then he just decides that he's going to go and marry, you know, if my brother is going to go marry my, my mother's brother's daughter, 
I'll just go to my father's brother's child and marry that one, and then I'll be good. Maybe I can get the blessing back. I'll beat Jacob to the punch. I'll marry a cousin before he does. There's just no sense of spiritual realities at all. No inclination at all. He has, in some sense, wants to make things right, but he's doing it in a fleshly way. He's not turning to God. He's not submitting. He tries with external change to earn a right standing before his father. And that's the picture of the natural man. Works righteousness. In fact, even Judas kind of does that same thing. He makes a mistake, right? He sells Jesus out. And then he goes and goes, well, maybe if I just give the money back, it'll be all right. And then when that doesn't work, he's lost all hope, right? Which really, the point is to go to Jesus in repentance and faith. Trusting in him for forgiveness. Like David does when he sins. Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. I cannot make this right in and of the flesh. I need, I need your forgiveness, right? That's the heart of faith. That's the heart, that's the new heart that goes to God for reconciliation and forgiveness first. That's the heart of Isaac, conforming himself to God. Esau tries to do things in the flesh, still doesn't repent, just layers another disobedience on top of another disobedience. Parents, you know this, right? You tell your kids all the time, two wrongs don't make a right. He thought that he could correct this, not realizing that before God, or maybe he did realize that before God, it was just disobedience layered upon disobedience. Let's just add more wives in the hopes that we can earn favor, as opposed to turning in God in brokenness and repentance. So just a couple things as we look at these two stories kind of side by side, Isaac and Esau, walking in repentance, walking in the flesh. Let me ask you just a couple questions to search your own heart. When God brings your sin to light, do you shake with fear? And walk in repentance? Does that become a problem for you, like Isaac does? And do you seek to manage sin's consequences with your own ideas, or just go to, to God in brokenness and repentance? There's two ways. There's two ways to live, right? There's two ways to deal with sin and brokenness. One is to try to make it right yourself apart from God. Trying to earn his favor works righteousness. The other is to come and just in total brokenness and go, I, I surrender, I commit. I will conform myself to your will as opposed to trying to check the boxes to get in your good graces. Which then sets us up for Yahweh. So now what we have is, let's, I want you to notice Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. He shows up, Jacob is on the run. He is, uh, he's fleeing quickly both to keep his life and to go get a wife. Oh, that rhymes. I didn't even plan that. He's got a twofold purpose. Flee for his life, find a wife, and then God, just out of nowhere, intervenes, interrupts, inserts himself into Jacob's life. Look at verse 10. So Yahweh lavishing his free grace. I want you to notice that as we walk through this section, verses 10 through 15. God just lavishes his free grace on Jacob. Verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. That's a good idea, right? Good to sleep at night. Hard to travel in it during the day. So he stays there because the sun had set. It's dark. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to, to sleep. Now we looked last week that apparently a lot of commentators say that Isaac is probably around 137 years old. He had children when he was 60 which makes Jacob and Esau roughly 77 
So Jacob's finally leaving home at age 77. And I'm concerned about that for my own kids. I, don't, I would be, what, 114 or something by the time I got the last one out. Okay, so, so he's finally leaving, setting the scene. 77 years old, finally leaving home for the first time. And he's leaving just a train wreck behind him, right? He's got a brother that wants to kill him. His mom and dad, while it seems like maybe there's some evidence they're working things out, you know, he is fleeing. And all of this blessing, all of this swindling, he doesn't have anything. In fact, he has to take a stone for a pillow. He has nothing with him. He's traveling so quickly. And he's on the run. And he's heading to Padanaram, places he's never been. He's all alone. There's no one to swindle. There's no one to help. He's got no possessions. He simply has a couple of words of promise from his father. And he's just out in the middle of nowhere. Doesn't even have a pillow. He's got to take a rock, a big rock, and lay his head to sleep. Verse 12, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So, this is possibly the word there says ladder. It could mean staircase. It could mean like kind of a ramp up, like maybe even like a ziggurat. Have you seen the ziggurats, kind of the pillar, the pyramid shaped whatevers? So it could be almost like a ziggurat. And that echoes back a little bit to the Tower of Babel, where mankind was trying to build from the ground up, basically a staircase from earth to heaven that we might not have to submit to God. We might not be scattered. We can build a tower to heaven. This sort of echoes back to that. Man always wants to try to build a religious ladder up to God. And here we see that God just freely offers access to himself. It has to come from heaven down. And so perhaps this is a ziggurat, perhaps a ladder, perhaps a staircase. Um, we're not quite sure. The word has some flexibility. But it's clearly communicating an access point between heaven and earth. Angels are doing God's bidding, bringing and sending messages giving and bringing protection, doing his bidding. Um, and so, and then also we see um, in verse 13, behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and of the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. That's just lavishing free grace, isn't it? The, the way it's translated here says the Lord stood above it. It also could be translated that the Lord stood beside him. The Lord stood behind him, which I think maybe is a better way to put it. It's not like God's echoing down the stairs. Hey, kids, come to dinner, right, you know? yelling down the stairs it's no it, it seems like god himself in some sense came down and is right next to jacob he is drawn near and he has something to say to him i think of all that jacob's done jacob has not demonstrated a particularly strong heart for god to this point this is not something that he has earned or deserved and god just simply draws near by his own grace to a man that's totally vulnerable Jacob has nothing right now, right? There's no way that he can manipulate the situation. He's asleep. He's totally vulnerable. No way to swindle, no way to trick, 
None of those things that he tends to rely on for his livelihood, he is just he and God and nothing he can do about it. What will God do? What will God say? Will God bring the hammer? Going, I am so disappointed in you. And here are the things that you better fix if you want to get my blessing. If there's any way that I'm going to use you, you're going to have to get your act together, Jacob, right? You would, you would say God is justified if he were to come, come down in that way, right? Do some penance, get it together, you know, we'll see. We'll see if we can make something of you. But God doesn't do that at all. God doesn't, God doesn't do any of that at all. What he starts with is not who Jacob is, but who he is. He comes and interrupts Jacob's life with an invitation, not, hey, Jacob, here's what you can do for me, but hey, here is what I will do through you. Just an act of free grace. Jacob has not earned it. Jacob is in the middle of nowhere. And here's what happens. God leads. He says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. So God begins with his covenant name, an introduction. Hey, I'm the covenant-keeping God that has made your whole family what it is. And we get this introduction of God's past faithfulness. You know the God that works so mightily in your grandfather Abraham? Yeah, that's me. And you know the God that has worked so mightily to prosper and protect your father Isaac, even though he... Even though both your grandfather and your father have been knuckleheads over and over again, but I've continued to bless them. Yep, I'm that God. Look at my faithfulness to your family, Jacob. So God leads with his personal name and a recounting of his past faithfulness to Jacob's family. Then he moves on to the generous future promises that are Jacob's that he is going to freely give to Jacob, which is of land and offspring. He gives him the Abrahamic promise. Your, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, which is exactly what he said to Abraham. I'm the same God with the same promises. These are still in the future. They're still coming. You haven't disqualified yourself from this. Your family hasn't wasted your opportunity and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth will be blessed. So past faithfulness, Jacob. Future blessing. I'm still good for the I'm still good for this. And then present. In the present, behold, I am with you. And I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Past faithfulness, future promises, and his presence now which is so good because he's about to run into a buzzsaw called Laban. He's going to get, he is going to get, for the next 20 years, he's going to meet his match in terms of deceptiveness, manipulation, swindling. And I think it's going to be God's refining of going, hey, you're going to kind of come face to face with yourself a little bit, right? And a little bit later, he's going to wrestle with God too. So this is initiating a process of refinement in Jacob to change who he is. But it starts with grace. It's not change yourself and then come to me. It's no, I have come to you to lavish my grace and my grace will change you over time. My grace will change you over time and it will be refining and it will be painful and it will be a process. But I will do this to you. I love verse 15. Wherever you go, I will be with you. So God is not contained just to the promised land. 
That could be a temptation. Once he leaves the promised land, he's left the realm of his God, and now he's got to he's got to comply with another God. That was part of part of the thought process in those days: is that gods were regional. If you leave one, you better go worship the one that's there because this one, they're regional. And he goes, nope, that's not the case. You can't outkick this coverage, right? You know that in football, right? You kick the ball too far, and their guys aren't able to cover him. Jacob, you could never kick the ball far enough to where I won't be with you. I will be with you wherever you go. So no correction, just free, unrelenting, unmitigating grace. This is what I'm going to do for you. And I think this really gives us evidence of one of the things that we call sometimes the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace. Just notice a little bit of the evidences of the doctrines of grace here. In one sense, Jacob has no ability to earn this. He has total inability. He's asleep. He's alone. He's broke. He's broken. He's filled with sin. There is nothing in Jacob that is deserving of this or could earn this from God. He's been unconditionally chosen. He's not better than his brother. We've seen that all, all along. But it tells us in the New Testament that before Esau and Jacob were born, I chose Jacob, not Esau. So this is an unconditional choosing of him. It's exclusive to him. He is going to bless Jacob in a way that he's not going to bless Esau. So there's an exclusiveness to this. And then there's also this irresistible grace. I will do this through you, Jacob. I will transform you. My grace will be so powerful and it will take some time and you will fail, but I will accomplish my purposes through you, which then perseverance to the end. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. I will guarantee that you are my chosen one and I will get my will done through you. I will hold on to you. I will preserve you. I will protect you. I will sustain you. I will be with you to the end. Now let's walk it out, right? Every stage of the redemptive story is at the pleasure, the will, the work of God alone. This is something God is going to do. There's no conditions here for Jacob. He's merely to receive it by grace through faith. God is going to transform Jacob the cheat by requiring him to trust in a promise. Same is true for us. Jacob, for a long time, will have nothing but a promise to cling to for a couple of decades. Trials will chip away at him, but all of it will be built on the foundation of grace. God will chip away at him through trials with grace, sustaining him all the way. So let's look at Jacob's response in verses 16 through 22. Responding in obedient faith. I think we have an example here of Jacob when he awakens from this encounter with God and God lavishing grace upon him, undeserved, unmerited grace that he couldn't earn, doesn't deserve, just gifted by this good God. I think we have a response, an example of responding in obedient faith. Look at verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Remember, he's in the middle of nowhere, but anywhere where God interrupts your life is a place of worship. Could be anywhere, because God's anywhere. Wherever God brings his word to bear and calls you to himself is a place of worship. God is there a gate has opened up 
his house is made available. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. This is anointing oil, not motor oil. Creating a place of worship and reverence and memorial of how God had intersected his life there. Verse 19, he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz, or Luz at the first. Bethel just means house of God. This is the place I met God. Then God made, or Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you have given me, I will give a, a full tenth back to you. So Jacob, Jacob's response here is really in three parts. First, he worships. He wakes up and just acknowledges, surely the Lord is in this place. How awesome is this place? And he's trembling with fear, which is the right response before a holy God. It's acknowledgement and awe at God's presence. His pillar, his pillow becomes an altar, becomes a place of worship and dedication, a witness and a monument drawing attention in the future to the importance of this place in the life of their family and how the promise will come together. And he pours oil on it as an act of consecration. So number one, verses 16 through 18, he worships. He just worships. Secondly, he names, verse 19. This is significant. The patriarchs often named places to show their significance as a reminder going forward. So he knows that there is a lasting impact from what he's encountered here that should be remembered and named. It's part of the responsibility of the patriarchs is they are in, are in a sense setting the playing field for the rest of the Old Testament. And so when these important encounters with God, these big life-changing, history-changing moments come, they know instinctively, I think because of God's leadership in their life, that they should name the place and define the reality so that future generations know where they came from and know the legacy that they are receiving. Unfortunately, Bethel will, over the centuries, become a place of great idolatry under Jeroboam and others. So unfortunately, this place where the one true God met with Jacob will now be, will eventually become a place that's known with idolatry. So he worships, he names, and then he vows. This is the longest vow in the Old Testament. He dedicates himself to, in obedience to God. Devotion. You are my God and I'm counting on you. Some commentators have looked at the if there as if um, Jacob is trying to swindle God or being kind of conditional, like he's kind of trying to hedge his bets. I think because earlier he's trembling in fear, this is actually a dependent if. God, if you come through, then you'll show to be my God, right? I think it's actually a dependent if, not a, not a like he's trying to swindle God here. It seems like he's totally in awe. He's been worshiping. He's named the place. And this if is an expression of, I can't do this myself. I'm going to need you to do it. And if you do it, God, then my, your grace will flow through me in generosity and blessing. So I think it's him being honest about his dependence upon the Lord. Lord, if you, if you will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. You'll show yourself to be my God. And so I think it's an act of dependence. 
Devotion, you are my God. I'm counting on you. Dedication, this place matters because I met you here in commemoration. I belong to you and I will demonstrate generosity because you have lavished free grace on me. I will give a tenth of all that I have. I will be a giver. I will be generous. I will intentionally, forcefully, purposefully be a blessing to others. And so I think here we have an, an appropriate response when we receive the free grace of God. When God brings our sin to our attention, when he lavishes his grace upon us, I think this is a good example of how we should respond. And so let me ask you this. Is this your response to the free grace and access of God? Is it worship? Is it dedication? Is it dependence upon him? Generosity, graciousness, trust. I think that's all here. It's real small at this point. It's just words. Jacob's going to have to walk this out, but it needs to start with that. It needs to start there. And this is what I hope will be true every time we gather as a church is that phrase, surely the Lord is with us. I hope that every time we gather as a church, metaphorically speaking, access to God, the ladder of heaven is being opened up to somebody here. That surely God is in this place because his word is being opened. Free grace is being offered. And hopefully there's somebody every single week that is having their eyes open to the glory of God and going, surely God is in this place and I did not know it. And I need him. I want him. I commit to him. 1 Corinthians 14 tells us this. This is in the context of spiritual gifts, but I think it gets at this sense of like um, when God's presence is, 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 is there and how we come to perceive it. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, the outsiders or believers will enter and they will say, you are out of your minds. But if all prophecy speak clear words of God's truth, and an unbeliever outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That God is in this place. That's what I hope every Sunday is, is a place where we're encountering the grace of God through his word again and again. And we're marveling at that together. And that we're committed to making that something that we do together regularly. This is a sacred space. God is everywhere. But there is something special about when his people are gathered to hear from him, to sing of him, to pray, to encourage one another that is unique. In fact, that's what Isaac said to Jacob is that I am, you know, one of the part of the blessing is you're going to be gathered into a congregation, right? A congregation of the faithful, a congregation of those that are trusting in the promise. And to some extent, we're a fulfillment of that right now. But there is a congregation that are generations down the line from that promise. And now we're congregated together in that way. And also this is encouraging. Every time you speak of Christ, that he may be known, that is a sacred space. That is a, an important point. You are pointing to the ladder of heaven when you share Jesus Christ with your friends and neighbors. You have the ability to point to the ladder to heaven. In that sense, every gathering of the church, every time the word is preached, every time Christ is, is explained, revealed, exalted, is a sacred place where God may be interrupting, intersecting, drawing near a sinner, right? This is why we must never neglect to gather together and never neglect to give the gospel away to others, right? So just uh, lastly, Jesus. Jesus takes this passage in John 1, and here's what we find out about Jesus as he connects to this. So we always want to find a way to get to Jesus and how he is the fulfillment of all the promises. It's really nice when Jesus himself makes the connection. It's really nice when Jesus himself goes, yeah, that Old Testament story, let me just go ahead and tell you, that's about me. 
And he does that in John chapter one. Jesus is heaven's access through Jesus Christ. Jesus is heaven's access, yes. Uh, John 1, 43, this was read earlier by Leah. Let me walk through it again and see if you don't see what's happening. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and on the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Which is kind of a derogatory thing to say. Philip said to him, come and see. So he calls him. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus is a little surprised by how quickly this response comes. He says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Nathaniel, he's already said, is a Jewish person who knows the stories, who knows that when God graciously appeared to Jacob, that was a significant moment in their history. And it's interesting the way that Jesus constructs this, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, because Jacob's former name was Deceiver. His name is changed to Israel. So Jesus could be doing this play on words with Nathaniel of going, hey, someone who is a true Israelite who has no Jacob in them. Now, I don't know if he's being ironic because he already knew that, that Nathaniel had kind of written off anyone from Nazareth. If he's sort of, you know, if this is sort of sarcastic or this is honest, it's hard to say. But it gets Nathaniel's attention. And all of a sudden, Nathaniel, when he finds out that God saw him when he was off by himself, just like Jacob. Jacob was in the middle of nowhere pillar under his head and God saw him and appeared to him came to him so also Nathaniel is finding out that Jesus himself came to him when he didn't know it certainly God is in this place and I did not know it you were with me in a way that I didn't know and that comes to his mind now and Jesus affirms it you will see even greater things than these because truly truly I say to you you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man you are getting the Jacob experience right now Nathaniel and it'll only get better than this. You will see me ascend and you'll see the angels come and speak for me. You will see me return in glory and my angels coming with me. You will see heaven opened up. You will see that I am the access point. I am the ladder. Jesus is saying that he is the covenant keeping God who seeks people out. I saw you under the tree just as God saw Jacob in the wilderness. Jesus is the presence of God come down from heaven. You don't have to go up to get him. I came to you when you were under the tree. You didn't even know I was there. And I was with you and I knew you and I saw you. Jesus is the conduit for angelic work. It says the angels will ascend and descend on me. Jesus is the, the point of the angels' work is to bring glory to Jesus. He's the mediator. Jesus is Bethel, the presence of God in physical space and time that you can meet. In real physical time and space, Jesus was on the earth. Jesus is the stairway to heaven. You don't climb him to get to you. He climbs down and carries you to heaven. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. And so the right response that we see in Nathanael is just like Jacob's. Jacob awoke from his sleep, said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. How awesome is this place? 
Nathaniel's response is, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. A right response of submission to him. Because of free grace. Because of God's presence. Because of his glory. And his willingness to come to sinners. So what about you? Have you had that moment with God? Where he unmistakably intervenes unexpectedly and changes your whole life. Have you had that moment where all of a sudden the gospel made sense to you that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can be made right with God? You can be like Esau, try to find your own route, or you can live in repentance. You can receive the free grace of God and worship him. Surely he is in this place. So respond like Jacob, respond like Nathaniel, and trust in the one true God trust in Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all of those promises. Let's pray. God, we pray that uh, even now there would be some here who are realizing that the God of free grace is giving them an opportunity to respond to him. That yes, there's a dealing with sin, that yes, there is a making things right with one another, but first it comes from you awakening our hearts, you opening our eyes. Jacob wasn't seeking this. You found him and opened his eyes. And God, there may be some here that are not genuinely seeking you, but you're opening their eyes even now. And I pray, God, that they would not resist you, that they would trust in Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that they would respond in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in dedication and worship to him. God, thank you. For those of us that have had that experience already of being brought to faith in you, help us to continue to walk it out. And God, we pray. Uh, for those that have not yet trusted in you, that maybe this would be the moment, this would be the time when they come to faith in you. Help us to be, uh, to prioritize our times together. Help us to prioritize giving others the opportunity through sharing the gospel. And we ask that you'd be glorified in all of it. Thank you for working your plan through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.